Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, where we're all about commander data and dad jokes. I'm Joey Schultz and I'm joined by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he can't wait to meet the dog named Dog Meat. It's Matt Morgan. This weekend I bought the probably the world's worst thesaurus. Um, not only is it terrible, it's also terrible. <laughs> oh Matt. Did I mention I... that it, it it's probably I think it's probably like pretty terrible? <laughs> oh wow. Oh yeah. That's oh that's terrible, man. I'm I'm really sorry for you. <laughs> it, it was it's a terrible experience. That's terrific. All right. Up next, if he builds a Mr. House deck, it will indeed be a house. It's Dana Roach. Um, in honor of the, the Magic Con this weekend, I got a little bit of uh, Chicago humor for you. Uh, how do you keep a bear out of your backyard in Chicago? How, Dana? Paint it like an end zone. Mm. I don't understand. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is nothing, that... nothing, nothing scares a bear in Chicago more than the possibility of being in an end zone. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say you hang a pennant, but those are cubs, not uh, bears. Yeah. Smaller that, that bears. Well. It's these sports. Jokes, Joey, it's sports ball. Yeah, no. These, <laughs> these jokes are aerodynamically designed to go right over my head. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dana, what are we talking about in this week's episode, man? We're going to talk about the most overrated cards of the last two-ish years. Ooh, the last... Uh, I think we, we actually limited to just about the last year. Last yeah, year, okay. Uh, some, some overrated cards. Um... Which is a big word to throw around, so I'm sure this won't yes. be uh, the kind of thing that feels incendiary to people at all, but it should be interesting to get into. Are these cards not quite measuring up to what people expected them to do or what we expected them to do? It'll be interesting We'll see how often into. Matt calls him terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I think listeners might have a pretty terrible time listening right. to that if that was the case. Absolutely. But we've got some shout outs to do before we get into our main topic. First up, we got to thank Chase, aka Mana Curves, for their terrific work on the post production of the show. Thank you so much, Mana Curves. And we are now members of Team Ultimate Guard as well. So if you see us this weekend, right now possibly, at MagicCon Chicago, we'll be playing with some sweet Boulder deck boxes and have our Alverdex suit up with katana sleeves. So come say hi. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by subscribing on YouTube. We're, we're coming up on 100,000 subscribers, and we would love to hit that goal by the end of the year. So make sure that you, your friends, your family, subscribe, because we would love to hit that, and we appreciate all the support there. And it's a free way to support us. But also, you can go to patreon.com slash edhretcast, where we have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want to join the Discord community for just $2 a month, you want to see all of our historic challenges, stats, picks, there's all of that and more over at patreon.com slash edhretcast, including the weekly, the coveted patron shoutout, which we're going to give this week to Jared too, who was not too good to go to patreon.com slash edhretcast. Uh, I think you should all should go to Patreon to support us. Y'all, y'all absolutely slay me. And, and Matt always is going to find the, the the joke that I was not expecting, which Matt, I appreciate about you very, very much. So uh, I, I do what I can. Just keeping you on your toes, Joey. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Keeping me on my twos. Uh, no, that was that was that was terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's just quit while we're ahead. Let's get into our main topic. We were talking about some overrated cards uh, from the past year, because uh, I think if we were to expand it to all of Magic history, we'd be talking about like, hey. There are a lot of people who misuse Brainstorm and stuff like that. So we do actually kind of want to keep a small window here. And I hope it's okay with you guys if I start us off with the card Everybody Lives, um, which I think I I'm not alone in having put this card forward as an overrated card from the past year. I think that one of you guys also felt the same way. It was, it was definitely one of the ones that I was debating putting on the list for sure. See, like, I'm just now looking at this card because I, I missed pretty much everything about the Doctor Who sets. There's a few <laughs> cards that I have seen. But also looking at this, it's, okay, you can't lose the game. Angel's Grace type of effect on there. But I also see the price tag, and I don't think it's that good. That's really it. Is a lot of the cards that I, I tried to err on the side of are, like, are these worth their price tag? Uh, and, and that's kind of where overrated comes into the discussion for me. Everybody lives is the two mana instant. All creatures gain hexproof and indestructible until end of turn. Players gain hexproof until end of turn. Players can't lose life this turn and players can't lose the game or win the game this turn. It's currently showing up in 12,000 decks. That's 3% of decks that are eligible to play it. It's a, you know, fairly new card. The top commanders for it are certainly going to be like a lot of the Doctor Who commanders, and, and even some group hug things as well, which is cool, but I think a lot of people expected this card to be Teferi's Protection, and 
and it's really not. <laughs> it's, it's really, really not. Like, even when you cast this card to protect from, like, a board wipe, for instance, you are saving other people's stuff in a way that heroic intervention into fairies protection make things one-sided. And so a lot of the use cases for this card have felt uh, very disappointing in comparison to what we know spells like this can usually do. So that's why I'm putting it forward as a little overrated. And to me, I wouldn't pay 15 or 17 or however many dollars it is to go and get this one. Yeah, the part of the power that comes with Teferi's Protection is that it allows your stuff to dodge whatever else is going on, but still there, there's three other players that are going to be affected by it. And so protecting your board versus protecting everyone's board and kind of freezing the game in time for a moment, that's where I think a lot of the power really comes from with Teferi's Protection type of cards because it's only saving your stuff yep. to then come back on there. Even even cards like Cyclonic Rift, it's getting rid of everybody else's stuff, but your stuff is still untouched. Yeah, it's it's not a bad card at all. I, I, I like it, and I actually think it's kind of a clever design. Yeah. Um, but the reason it's overrated is it's not Teferi's Protection. It's not that kind of card that's useful in a dozen different situations in every deck that's able to run white. And from a design perspective, maybe that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't think we need cards that are silver bullets and that are automatically and an auto included in every single deck. Um, so I, I maybe like this design more than Teferi's Protection. Yeah. But the reality is, if you are looking at this like a, like a second copy of Teferi's Protection, it's not that. It's it's a much narrower card that does much narrower things, and it's important to remember that when you include it. And it, based on its inclusion numbers and in decks so far, I don't think people are aware of uh, how, how much how much more limited it is than than. Teferi's Protection. Yeah, like, it, it scuppers a Thassa's Oracle, and that's very, very funny. But that's a very narrow use case. Uh, it, it, to me, the thing that I found most effective with it is the it giving your stuff hexproof when someone's trying to single target removal. But, like, I, I don't know, two, two mana for that effect? I'm like, ah, I don't know. That's also, it's also a very, very crowded field, too. The, like, the exactly. one mana save one of your things. Like, you have Tyvar's Stand, which I don't think Tyvar's Stand is nearly as great, just because, like I said, it's a crowded field. You could... I, I almost thought about putting Tyvar Stand on my list for this because there's so many different vari like variations of that single effect that I don't think any one really stands out anymore. Yeah, and even just in white, there's Lauren's Escape, and like that's a quarter <laughs> to, yeah. to acquire. Yeah. Um, and, and the fog aspect of this card is kind of interesting too, because like, oh, you can't lose life. But Dana, <laughs> you you've got a point about the the commander damagey issue that sometimes comes with everybody lives. Yeah, or or, or in fact as well. Yeah. Like it, it buys you. A split second, it buys you like long enough to say pass the turn, <laughs> right. and, then, and then that and then it stops. That that effect quits working. Yeah, because it doesn't stop the damage. So commander damage still happens to you even if your life total doesn't change, which is different than Teferi's protection because you gain protection from stuff. So like you won't be dealt the damage. Uh, but like yeah, it's just a a very funny like huh. There are all these little use cases that make this card not as great as we all hoped it would be. Maybe in, in the last note I will make about it is uh, I'm someone who runs blacksmith skill in a couple decks. That's a, a single white mana instant that that gives a creature indestructible and hexproof. Mm. And, and it buffs an artifact creature, but that's, that's really relevant. Um, one of the things I've, I've been looking at since this card was released is like, oh, I wonder, do I want to upgrade Everybody Lives? So whenever I had a blacksmith skill in hand and wound up using it, I thought to myself, okay, would I prefer Everybody Lives here? And I've never said yes. Mm -hmm. Like, I've never had an answer where, like, I would have rather have had this card in my hand and had to leave two mana up and had a situation where it was relevant that blacksmith skill just didn't do the job for, for one less. Or, or even there's another new card that we just got last year too with Surge of Salvation, which that's kind of overperformed for me a lot too, which one mana, you and permanence you control gain hexproof until in turn. So if like that's all you're trying to do, it's going to save all of your permits from single target removal for that entire turn. So I don't know if it's worth protecting your opponent's boards for one extra. And there's there's more obviously than just like the hexproof aspect. I get that. Right. right. But also I... I don't want to protect my opponent's stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> either. That's that's, a, that's my big drawback. Yeah, yeah. Now, now that we've seen so many cards that can protect you, just you, uh, having something that goes everywhere, you do have to find very a, a lot more specific cases for it than maybe it first appeared. And so that's why that, combined with the higher price tag, makes me be like, mm, I think I'm going to put this as an overrated one. But that was one of mine. Matt, how about one of yours? So one of mine, it's a card that I feel... It's probably just bad for the power levels that I play at, especially when with you guys are going to my local game store. And it's CEDH where this card really shines. But I just, 
We all know that I don't think monologue tax is a great card. <laughs> so why is everybody hyped about monologue tax on a two color creature? And Lotho Corrupt Sheriff is kind of that. Really? To me. Uh, so whenever a player casts, a, casts their second spell each turn, you lose one life and create a treasure token and it's on a two one body. I don't think Lotho was all that great. Like, why would I want to lose a life to create a treasure where you can just put on monologue tax? You're not losing any life to see Lotho in as many decks as it's in. I mean, it's, it's, it's in 40,000, 45,000, excuse me, decks. And that's 11% of eligible decks. I don't think that Lotho is near that powerful that it should be showing up in this many numbers. Interesting. Now, there is an important distinction between monologue tax and Lotho, which is that monologue tax only counts your opponents, whereas Lotho says any player sure. casting their second spell. So if you cast Lotho and then something else, like you do get an immediate benefit from it. So to me, there is that difference, which helps a lot. Um, but in your experience, has this card not produced a lot of treasures for you? Uh, it's not produced a lot of treasures for me. And maybe it's just because, like I said, the power level that you play it at, if you're playing at the CEDH levels where ev literally everyone is playing two spells per turn every turn, then yeah, there might be a huge payoff there. But I don't think losing a life to get a treasure is all that valuable to me, honestly. Um, I could be completely far off, but I, I just don't think Lotho, especially for the price tag on the card, that's where I'm just kind of very concerned because for a while there, it was a pretty pricey card. It's dropped down a little bit, but man, I, I've i never been terribly impressed with this, even when I've seen it on the battlefield. Dana, what do you think about losing life to get things? <laughs> well, that that's biased. I, I'm all for it. <laughs> I, I'm all for it. However... I, I'm with Matt here in that I, I think this the, the way the game works today, even at a casual level, um, a piece that exists in your list just to provide incremental value probably isn't enough to justify a slot these days. Hmm. And that's what this is. And, and and it's not even for the most part like it's part like like it's a it's a creature type that's relevant necessarily, and you're like, well, I'm I'm running this this you know Thassa's Oracle. If you're not playing the combo, isn't that amazing of a card? But maybe if you're playing a Merfolk Kindred deck, well, it's it's maybe good enough just to get the ETB trigger or something. Even if you're not like doing the abusive thing with it, uh, Halfling Rogue isn't even necessarily a, a relevant creature types in very many decks. So it's it's a value piece that probably generates some decent value, I guess. But that isn't interesting, I don't think, or or even particularly useful in a deck these days when it feels like every card's a haymaker for for me this one uh, i actually find the the fact that it's legendary to be one of the things that kind of like sets it up not in terms of it being a commander but like that kind of buys it places in like radodrabic and, and dihada decks for example sure um but that is i mean that's going to be the case in, in tons of the cards that we'll talk about today we're like yeah in, in this very specific deck they're going to do a whole lot of stuff i i still like lotho i, I only have it in one deck where the rogue part is relevant i've got a party deck mm -hmm. but yeah it, it's interesting i to me the the part that's hardest about this card is remembering the dang trigger because i'm very bad at that so if i'm gonna <laughs> sure. call anything overrated it's just my own ability to remember that this thing triggers on people's second spells i it's the it's the skill issue yeah a skill issue thank you matt thank you wow okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's the thing like it's one of those cards that like i've seen it pop up in decks where I don't understand why it's in that deck other than the person thought it was a good card and put it in, which is fine, but like I, it's been the kind of card that hits a field enough, and I've, having watched how the deck played out, thought, why is that in your list? Interesting. Okay. Maybe I don't have enough experience with this one, so uh, I'll have to investigate a little bit more. So that's an interesting pick that I would not have expected. Yeah, I mean, the card is in the top 25 cards from last year, and that just, wow. seeing it over some other cards that you could have been, that from last year, as far as how popular they are, I, I struggle to think Lotho is better in just a majority of decks. Yeah, yeah, and that's an interesting, you know, that's a, a good angle as well. It's not like, oh, this card is overrated in specific. Like, that's not what you're saying. It's just like, yeah, we got a lot of cards last year. <laughs> so for it to be among the top 25, that is actually a surprise to me. I'll definitely. So from that perspective, I, I see where you're coming from for sure. Um, Dana, I think that moves us on to you. Um, my first here is Staff of Completion. Um, three mana artifact, um, has four different abilities on it. Uh, pay one life to destroy target permanent you own. You can tap it and pay two life to add a mana of any color. You can tap it and pay three life to proliferate. Um, and you can tap it and pay four life to draw a card. And then you can also spend five mana to untap it and do any of those things again. So I guess technically five abilities. Um, the problem with Staff of Completion is none of them are that particularly powerful. Mm -mm. Um, 
it's it's a again a fine card, but I think like the fact that Staff of Domination was a feared card and an outright banned card for so long that like getting a updated version of that has maybe skewed some people's understanding of how powerful it is. Um, you know, I, I have two decks that would act, care about proliferate and run proliferate effects, and this isn't good enough for either of them. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an oh, it, it, and I'm not saying it's not a decent card, but like I look at it and like, oh, there's better ways to do anything this deck does, and while it or this card does, and and, and all the thing, other things it does aren't necessarily even that useful to offset it. I, I I've been terribly, and I, I wouldn't say underwhelmed, but I I'm just been whelmed like this card people the, the hype surrounding this card definitely fell short of what it ended up doing in the format yeah exactly because you see it and the immediate callback is to that staff of domination yeah um as a quick like just oh, yeah, let, let me check this i went to the commander spellbook website um which can track uh combos and also it has um some idiotrek integration there to see how popular those combos actually are. Staff of Domination has 167 uh, possible combos in the Commander Spellbook database, which is really interesting to see. And a lot of them are very popular. Staff of Completion has um, 11 possible combos. Uh, and the most popular of those combos currently shows up in 148 decks total. Yeah. So, so, so I just think that's probably noteworthy in terms of us comparing these cards <laughs> yeah. and how one didn't quite measure up to what people uh, thought based off of staff of domination. So, Dana, this is a really good pick. I, I totally forgot about this card until you, until you said it. <laughs> <laughs> like just fully. <laughs> staff of completion is the sequel that's doing a lot of um, drafting on how good the original movie was. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but th but this, this happens a lot though, where I feel like we see a card that is a callback to a previously very very powerful card, and then the callback just doesn't really live up to the expectations or the mm -hmm. that we whatever you want to say that the, the expectations. Yeah, it's probably the the big one of what is this card trying to do? Is it pretending to do? Does it want to do? And staff completion is probably the poster child for these things just falling flat when it comes to living up to the reputation of its predecessor. Yeah, that's a, a really good way to put it. It is like the expectations that we as players are bringing into it affects things a whole lot for sure. Um, and, and actually, I just want to pause and remark upon the fact that Dana was calling a card that allows you to pay life for benefit overrated. Paying <laughs> life for right. stuff is like Dana's favorite thing. What's going on? Twice man? in a row we've done that. I've done that. I know. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to move on to my next one. And listen, I was trying not to put just white cards into my list, but this one is also a white card. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But O'Hare Talk, Deepest Foundation, is the six mana token tripler. And it's like $20, $21 right now. And this one, I just, I also had to be like, I, I saw this card and I was like, I'm not going to get that for my tokens deck. It's the six mana, six, six vigilance. If you would create tokens, you create three times that many instead. And if it dies, it can flip over into a land and the land does nice, really cool stuff. But this is one that I'm just like, I can't, I'm sorry. I can't, I taking off this, like this turn, turn six, that's a lot. And the difference between this and like stuff like Mondrak and Anointed Procession, which are also very expensive, and those ones just double your tokens. To me, the numbers, it just kind of becomes an academic thing. I'm just like, listen, if I turn my four tokens into eight tokens with an Anointed Procession, it doesn't feel all that different if I were to turn them into 12 tokens with O'Hare Talk. So I have not gone out of my way for this one just because it did. I don't know. It's currently showing up in like 20,000 decks, 5% of the decks that are eligible to play it, but this has not really struck my heart in the way that it seems to have struck other people's. So what do you guys think? So I, I've just got a copy of O'Hare Talk in the mail, so I haven't gotten a chance to play with it yet. I am curious about it. That is that is for sure, because it's it's a very powerful effect. It's tripling anything in this game is, is a very, very powerful and, and desirable type of effect. And so... I am curious to all the reasons that you argued against it. I, I agree with, and I think that's probably one of the big things to keep it in check, but also just sometimes, I mean, Nick's bloom ancient, everybody was kind of like, well, at that point, is it really worth tripling? Turns out yes. So at that point, tripling the tokens you make that it probably still is. Yes. I think it certainly can be. And, and I, I also truly think that this is going to be at its best when you're like tripling individual 
important tokens. Sure. Like uh, like the Radadrabic that I mentioned earlier, where you're just making a single copy of things and then turning that into three copies. I think that's where you'll find the most effectiveness with this type of effect. But when it just comes to this is a, a deck that just wants to have a whole bunch of bodies on the battlefield, there are already so many ways of accomplishing more bodies than your opponents know what to do with that for me, it hasn't felt like, oh, a triple will make a meaningful difference in that regard. I don't know, Dana, do you agree, disagree? Have, have you got experience with this one? So so the first thing I, I want to note here is way back in the day when we were uh, doing a set review and we were talking about the card Fiery Emancipation, which was, I believe, <laughs> the first damage tripwar. I know where this is going. Oh, no. Okay, I see where you're going. It was a card I liked, but I but I made the same note that I'm not sure it's functionally any different than Gratuitous Violence, which just doubled the damage. I'm not saying I didn't like the card. I just was saying I don't. It's fine. It, it's it's a thing we already have. So like getting getting excited about tripling a thing didn't seem much different than excited about doubling a thing. Um, so I, I'm kind of on board with what you're saying here, Joey. However, the one thing I, I I do think there's a maybe a difference, but there's a difference like Matt said between tripling your mana and doubling it. I don't know if there is for damage. I always feel like gratuitous violence kills somebody just as easily as fiery emancipation usually. So the question becomes, is that which which end of the spectrum here is tokens on? Um, I tend to think it's maybe more relevant in tokens, uh, particularly because the, more often than not, they're one ones. And the more you can get, the easier it is to like take people out. Um, but I'm not sure either because I haven't seen this card played enough. I do, however, tend to agree that like the level of excitement for seeing the words triple on it compared to the level of excitement that people would have had if I just said double I don't know if it's worth the reaction. I don't know if it's that much better than like just doubling. See, I don't know because because Mondrak Glory Dominus is the number two card from 2023, and all that does is double your tokens. So I and there's a huge difference. I, I know like doubling it's still powerful, but like there's a huge huge difference between I'll do a thing and make three tokens, and I'll do a thing and make nine tokens. That is a massive difference. And and even then, mm -hmm. I, I would say exponentially better than just three to six, just in the terms of the impact it makes on a game. So I I really want to get this card into play and get a better idea because I think either, Joey, you're going to be super right or you're going to be super wrong. And I don't know which <laughs> it is quite yet. Well, the, the other thing, too, is that there's a massive difference between like something like Mondrak that you play at turn four versus something like O'Hare Talk that you play for six mana. Like four mana versus six mana is a very different creature to me. And Mondrak even having the ability to make itself indestructible has also been very relevant. And even just like being, it's got its own little sacrifice outlet effect that I've been very impressed by as well. But like, yeah, I, this is a card that like, if you're using it, I bet it can have huge payoffs for you. But there have been enough times where I'm like, I don't know if I need this in play because there are even times when I'm playing in game where I'm just like, mm, I don't have a turn to play a doubling season right now. And doubling season's a great card, but I could also like see cases where it's kind of overrated. Um, to get back to the fire emancipation thing though, Dana, I am going to still push back on you on that one. Because <laughs> <laughs> to me, here's another difference with the creation of tokens versus what fire emancipation does. Like creating, like you play O'Hare Talk and and then it needs to stay alive and then you can create something and then you'll get your payoff and then those tokens will be able to attack on a later turn i guess fire emancipation takes your boat your board that is already full you play it and then surprise this is a lot more lethal than you thought it was those are two different stages of tempo that i think are relevant for the conversation when it comes to what we're tripling but but joey i think also that same argument applies the other way to or talk too though because you could have say a token generating engine on board already and then you drop O'Hare Talk, and then that just pushes it overboard because you're able to do it without needing to invest mana necessarily. And so I, I think that argument applies both ways. Not, not that it's an incorrect argument. I just think that it goes towards both of these cards. Mm, okay, yeah. Yeah, I think in a lot of tokens, there are plenty of tokens decks that are going to do that, like your Bernards and your Myral Shield of Argives are, yeah, are going to be yeah. like already set up to help you. And maybe that's a good distinction to point out is like, is the deck mm -hmm. ready to have this be a surprise? Othari could be potentially another one of those. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to create those scenarios uh, as opposed to. Uh, yeah, okay. So 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 that does make sense. And and so a lot of the decks, the ways that I'm using tokens, do not have those already built in engines. And it's much more like I have to keep my anointed procession style card alive until the next turn where I can get the payoff. So that's a good tempo distinction. Which is curious be because I think in your Thalese deck, this would be an absolute just monster because it triples the tokens you make. And then at the end of the turn, it triples those tokens that you make, which is already tripled. 
that's where I think this is that's kind of the situation where overtalk really gets out of hand. Well, yes, but what I'm saying is that if I've already used the least to make 10 bodies in play, I might be able to kill you next turn regardless. So I don't know if I need to have 30 or, or however many. Uh, Would you be better point. served at that point running like a clever concealment or some way to save your stuff from a board wipe versus like yeah. turning a kill into overkill? Yeah, that's that's where the numbers start to feel a little bit academic to me. And that's why this card is so interesting to talk about. And I think that there are cases where it might be a bit of a distraction to take that turn off. Um, and and again, it being an expensive card means that I just want to put a little caution about just like you don't feel like you need to go get this one. But Matt, now that you do have this one, I'm curious to see how it works for you compared to how it would work for me. Well, I mean, hopefully I get a chance to report back in on it because I've been trying to report in on Last March of the Ants for a year now and I still haven't gotten to. <laughs> so hopefully it doesn't turn to that type of situation either. We're in Chicago right now as this episode comes out. So Matt, I hope that you're playing some games with listeners and that you get the chance. <laughs> you get the chance to cast it and resolve it. I, all I want to do is all I want to do is resolve this card. That's amazing. All right, we've got a lot of other examples that we want to get to, and not all of my picks for overrated cards are white cards. I promise. <laughs> but we do also have to take a quick break for challenge the stats, one of our favorite segments here on the show because there's so much data on EDHREC that we don't always agree with. So we'll take a quick break and come right back with that. Uh, my challenge this week is for a card called Spectacular Showdown. It's a sorcery for one and a red, and it says put a double strike counter on target creature, then goad each creature that had a double strike counter put on it this way. However, it also has overload for four and three red, so you can put a double strike counter on every creature and then goad each creature that had a double strike counter put on it this way. Um, I think that's genuinely just a really good card. Um, how many people are going to survive? First of all, you swinging out double strike stuff if you cast it first main phase, and then everyone else smashing one another with double strike stuff. Um, it's just going to wreck most people. However, there's always the concern that like somehow it makes it back around and everyone now has creatures with double strike counters on them, and they're going to set their sights on you. Um, I, however, ran into this card the other night in a Pramacon Sky Rampart deck is a three-color commander, blue, red, and white for a legendary creature wall. It has flying and defender, and when it enters the battlefield, you choose left or right, and each player may only attack the nearest opponent in the chosen direction, and they're going to attack, attack Planeswalkers that way as well. A commander that kind of eliminates any risk or downside to putting a bunch of double-strike counters on your opponent's creatures. Mm. As just happened recently in a game I was playing against, the, the Primacon player picked the person who could attack him as someone who had one small body in play, so the double strike counter was irrelevant, and everyone else beat each other up because they had really no choice. Great card and probably just should generally see more play, but if you're playing Primacon, it should be in more than 6% of lists for sure. I love Spectacular Showdown. So it's it's spectacular indeed. Uh, every time I've seen it cast, someone dies. Yeah. Like this this card just straight up someone someone's losing and it's gonna happen soon. Uh, so yeah, a really cool card, really cool pick. All right, I've got our listener submitted challenge the stats this week, and this one comes to us from our Discord patron Levi, who wants to talk about Ishin Two Heavens as one decks and the card Ryu Storm's Edge in those decks. Uh, this is Ishin is one of the most popular commanders in the format. This is the number three most popular commander right now with 20,000 decks to its name. That is wild. And Levi points out that Ryu Storm's Edge is showing up in 35% of those Ishin decks, and that might be a little overplayed. Ishin is the Mardu combat uh, trigger doubler guy, which is really, really cool. But Ryu specifically says it, it's a four mana, three, three human samurai with first strike. And it says whenever a samurai or warrior you control attacks alone, untap it. If it's the first combat phase of the turn, there's an additional combat phase after this phase. Initially, this looked really cool, and Levi actually points out that they were using it in their Ishin decks for a good long while, but every time they saw Ryu in play, they were pretty disappointed by it. Uh, it, 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 didn't, it didn't feel all that great, especially because the way that Ryu is worded, you're only going to untap once. Like, this is only triggering off of either Ryu or Ishin attacking alone, so you're not getting any of the combat triggers from any of your other creatures, and you actually don't get the benefits of the extra combat phase additional trigger because that untap effect only happens one time and, and levi also points out that like if you're attacking alone with ishin that's a really great way to get ishin blocked or removed from the board uh levi says this feels like an instance where people are seeing the when blank attacks and the words extra combat and assuming that therefore the card is like an auto include with ishin uh 
but it just it doesn't actually feel all that possible to use this ability in a way that feels meaningful. So uh, Levi, I've absolutely got to co-sign with you on this. 35% for Ryu Storm's Edge in Ishin decks. I also agree that that's too high. This is a card that I would totally cut from the deck too to make room for other cool combat damage triggers. Thank you so much for this challenge. Well, I'll step up next then. And so my card is one that I kind of missed when everything was going through preview season. Uh, so Doctor Who, like I said earlier, I didn't really pay that much attention to. It wasn't really my kind of set. But as I'm digging through and finding new cards, one really stuck out to me. And then Joey kind of, you, you reinforced it as we were talking before the show. And the card Reverse the Polarity is a card that mm. I'm kind of shocked with all the cool cards that we've seen in the past year or so. This one hasn't gotten more attention. So reverse the polarity is one blue blue that says choose one, counter all other spells, switch each creature's power and toughness until end of turn. And then the final mode is creatures can't be blocked this turn. So there's a lot going on there. And I know that Dana instantly is rolling his eyes because I said a three mana counter spell, but there's more to it than just that. There's a lot going on with, with reverse the polarity. If you're playing a go wide type of token deck and you would like to just get blockers through or get blockers out of the way, I should say. Versus the polarity is there for that. There's a lot of just corner case. Nice. It's it's almost like a charm, really, where there's so many just different little corner cases that this card is really going to shine. Maybe there's a counter war going on and people are getting all sorts of benefits from that. Well, it's just a good way to kind of fluster storm and close the door on all the other spells that are going on there. I just really like this. It has a lot of overlap as far as a lot of applicability with C-Double, which is another card from last year that I absolutely love. So just reverse a polarity. If you're playing stuff, I I, I imagine that a lot of Brutaclad, Telcor Engineer decks would love this card. Mm. I know my Ovika, Enigma, Goliath, but anything that just you put a lot of creatures on the battlefield and you want them to punch through, that's great. But also, you can hold the three mana up and just counter all these spells that are going on there. And then I guess if you're playing against Tree Folk deck and there's a bunch of <laughs> 07s laying around, well, there's a good way to board wipe them too, I guess. So there's a lot to like about reverse the polarity. There's a lot of flexibility. Just there's there's a lot going on there that's more than just the 4,500 decks that it's currently being played in would indicate otherwise. So if you need a nice, flexible option to fill one of those last slots in your deck, reverse the polarity is absolutely a great option to consider. Yeah, it either protects your board or makes your board lethal. That's Those are two really great modes. Yeah, it's 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 such a powerful effect. I'm I'm kind of shocked it hasn't latched on more. All right, cool, cool stuff. So uh, now I think, guys, we are going to move back into our main topic here. Um, I've named two cards that I thought were a little overrated or overhyped or whatever, but uh, you know, we we got to get to the second one from one of you, Dana. Let's pass it off to you. What's your next card that you think is maybe uh, was overrated in the past year? We'll see if this. Maybe I'm just trolling Joey with this card. Um, <laughs> Breach the multiverse. <laughs> uh seems like a troll to me a little bit yeah uh, really five five and double black sorcery each player mills 10 cards and for each player choose a creature or planeswalker card in that player's graveyard and put those cards onto the battlefield under your control then each creature you control becomes a phyrexia in addition to its other types that last line of text is largely irrelevant for the most part so yeah. mostly it's a way to reanimate three creatures and or planeswalkers um this is not a bad card again but the the way that it mills 10 people's cards into their graveyard on one hand in theory gives you more options to choose from in terms of reanimation on the other hand sets you up to absolutely get domed by someone else who's playing a graveyard deck in particular because you really for the most part can't do anything with those creatures until the following turn unless they have a really juicy etb um i i just think there's better ways to do this same thing that aren't as risky and if you're playing in a limited environment that doesn't have access to rise of the dark realms or something then i can see why you would go with this but like I, there are very few situations i think where i would choose this over rise of the dark realms because of that uncontrollable mill portion and I don't think I want both in a deck. Hmm. Um, so uh, that's why I think it's it's overrated. I think we have a clearly superior choice. And I don't know why I would choose this. And I don't think I want both. But it's still showing up in 40,000 decks. So as, as a real quick thing, the math uh, I think we need to point out. Because uh, people have already shattered it out their car stereos or written it in the comments. Uh, you said revive three. It will get four because it also counts you. Oh, for and yourself. That that's true. Yes. Sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, so that that's an important thing here. The milling, I understand where you're coming from. 
because this is like yes you are giving potential fuel to people and we know that that's dangerous especially if you're playing against me um <laughs> but it's also like if they didn't have a graveyard to begin with well now you've definitely got a hit off of them sure um and I've never been sad when I've cast this card ever. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I, I cannot agree with you, but we also know I'm biased <laughs> because, um, because I just, I, I love, I love, I love everything graveyard, and I love reanimating. And <laughs> the times that I've cast this spell, it has done some truly bug nutty things. I feel like the four enter the battlefield effects that you are likely to get off of this do have a pretty sizable impact right then and there. I also get, though, if you are comparing it to cards like Rise of the Dark Realms, I get where that comparison is coming from, too. And Rise of the Dark Realms does usually just, like, it's it's hard to lose a game after you resolve that spell. So I understand what you mean. I don't agree. <laughs> like, I think I even would want Sulpertial Primordial over this, I think. I, I actually also understand that because the fact that that's a creature like is a lot more abusable in the decks that care to abuse this type of effect. Like you can blink it, you can sacrifice it, bring it back. You'd run it in a deck that probably already has that already has you know animate dead or necromancer, a bunch of other ways to reuse this after you've already used it multiple times. So yeah, breach is good. I just think that there's other things I would rather use more. So I'll play the swing vote then here. Um, I have had success casting breach the multiverse in brawl. And it's fine there. Um, I also think that Brawl is a vastly different format than Commander, just by the nature of there's being, you know, more players at the table. Um, I I kind of am going to side with Dana on this, though. I think it, it, you want to spend two more mana for Rise of the Dark Realms. There, there's other mass reanimation type of effects here. And uh, yeah, Sepulchral Primordial is a fantastic alternative to this. Now, you don't get to mill the 10 cards. I, that's probably a big thing, but... Also, you're not fueling up Joey's graveyard when he's already got <laughs> something on the battlefield. Like he's got a Sir Conrad sitting there just, oh, please cast Breach the Multiverse because I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and so there, there's a bunch of effects like that where um, it's probably situational, but I think uh, I, I'm going to go with the safest and most reliable bet. And that most oftentimes is going to be something like Sepulchral Primordial, like some of the other, other alternatives. I mean, maybe I just have magic PTSD from from anything getting put in Joey's graveyard and I don't want to contribute to it. Yeah. Honestly, that's very fair. Like, I, I think this is a card that you have to, you can't just windmill slam it in the way that you can some of the other animation effects out there. Sure. You do have to like, take a moment, like test the air, <laughs> see if it's just like, is the wind clear here for me to actually like play this safely? I understand. But like, Matt, it's seven mana to get four creatures into play. It, like, even if it that was like a green card, like you, you'd have to be like, ooh, four creatures, right? Like, uh, that's great. That's cool. There's, like, that's awesome. With the mill effect, you're never going to whiff. There's always going to be targets. So that's definitely true. Yeah. But also there, there's, you can play Silvala Stampede and you, you're going to get the same amount and you can just rip into all sorts of cool stuff there too. So like, I, I see where you're going with why Breach would be great. I just think that there's a lot of alternatives that are just kind of competing for what I would argue is a very crowded space in this type of effect. All right. Well, Dana, I, I have to disagree with you, but I understand your caution and being a cautious player has helped you out many a time. So uh, so I, I understand where you're coming from, but I am going to play this in, in so many texts <laughs> regardless. I don't Because also like calling a card overrated when it just makes me giggle this much. Like, if a card makes me laugh, I don't care. <laughs> like, there's also that aspect to it as well. I can't argue with that. Yeah. All right, Matt, how about you? What's your next one? Well, I, I let's give Joey a break. Um, <laughs> I'm still going to challenge a black card, though, so, like, we're not really going to give Joey a break. Oh, no. uh, so a card that I've seen that a bunch of people were very, very excited for, I put into a deck and I tried it out, and it was completely just not what I was expecting it to be, is Hoarding Broodlord, which is showing up in over 23,000 decks so far. And this card is fine, but paying eight mana to like put, okay, maybe you potentially convoke it out and you get to basically tutor up a card and exile it and play it from exile. That's fine, but eight mana for this kind of effect, I, I was not very impressed with this card when I played it myself. Uh, I've seen a couple people play it and they seemed very excited by it, but also when I looked at it, I was like, that's that's all you're doing with that? <laughs> Surely there's got to be better options. And so something about Hoarding Broodlord, it's one of the top 100 cards from 2023. And again, to do kind of what I did with my last challenge, this is seeing more play than cards like Sea Double or Up the Beanstalk. And those two cards are wild. <laughs> well, like Up the Beanstalk literally is Wilds of Eldraine, but wow. <laughs> you can't tell me that Hoarding Broodlord 
should be in more decks than Up the Beanstalk, which is just Up the Beanstalk. I think is one of the best cards from last year. Yeah. So Hoarding Broodlord, eight mana, black dragon, uh, seven six, convoke and flying. And when it enters the battlefield, you search the library for a card, exile it face down, then shuffle, and you can play that thing as long as it's exiled. And spells that you cast from exile have convoke. And I have to assume that like that last line is what gets people intrigued because there are so many strategies these days that let you play stuff from exile. Um, but Matt, you're not picking on me at all. I actually agree with you. I don't like this card very much. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I assume that people want to play that in stuff like Prosper decks, but Prosper doesn't really need help, no. especially from a spell you're not casting until way late that costs eight mana. It, yeah, Pr- Prosper's got so many good cards that work in a Prosper deck that this one, uh, yeah. it, I don't think it would necessarily make the cut. Um, the fact that it's a dragon is interesting, but like dragon decks are also really crowded so yeah they are uh, so that feels like a tough sell for this one too um yeah i'm, I'm kind of with you i don't think that i'd ever build a deck that has a home for this one which is kind of a shame it's an interesting idea but i agree that like its inclusion rate like is higher than i would expect it to be it's, it's in more decks than moonshaker cavalry which that what hurts how my <laughs> that hurts my brain a lot so i have a demir dragons deck and there are so few good Demir Dragons that I'm running things like Icefall Regent and Phantasmal Dragon and Doom Breath Monstrosity. And there are so few good blue and black dragons that I just made one of those names up and you guys didn't catch it. <laughs> Despite the fact that there's so few of them, um, Hoarding Broodward doesn't make the cut for me in that in that list. So that should tell you how I feel about it. Now, to be fair, in a dragon deck, there's not a lot of bodies that I have that aren't being used attack to attack with that I can, you know, often use a conspire ability. That's kind of a lost cause in that particular deck. But the kind of deck that can use it probably doesn't want a dragon. It wants like something that's synergizing with zombies, say, for example. Um, and, and this, I don't know if it, it does. I think you'd be better off running something that does a bunch of zombie stuff than than this. So it, it's an okay card, I think that just doesn't necessarily fit on a dragon in the color black. Yeah, well, and plus you mentioned playing it in a dragon's deck. If you're putting out these big, like, five, six, seven mana spells and creatures, you probably don't want to be using them to convoke something. Yeah. You want to use those to to, to turn them sideways and, and attack with them. And so you're asking the deck to do something it doesn't want to do anyways. And so maybe I'm completely off and you want to play this in a tokens deck as a payoff, but I don't think that's all that great of a payoff. I think you play Uhur Talk instead Agreed. and started <laughs> to throw that one back out there, Joey. But no, that's funny. I don't think I'm wrong either. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. That's, that's really funny. I like that. Um, man, I hate to just have like a stripe of black cards that we're all here discussing, but like <laughs> I, I promise that my next card that I picked for this subject would not be another white card. And I actually picked a black card to try and show that I can be unbiased. I don't just love only the color black and I, I worship all of the reanimator stuff. Um, but I guess we're talking about another black card here, uh, which I didn't intend to happen. Um, but I wanted to put forth Drivnod Carnage Dominus as potentially an overhyped card. I've, I've gone back and forth on this one a lot because it's not even all that expensive. It's currently like five or six bucks right now. And the effect is good. We've seen with cards like Tesa, who's also one of the most popular commanders out there right now, that like doubling your death triggers, that's a good effect. Drivnod is a five mana, eight, three Phyrexian horror. If a creature dying causes a triggered ability of a permanent, you control the trigger. That ability triggers an additional time. You can also pay two Phyrexian black mana, exile three creature cards from your graveyard and give it an indestructible counter. This one is showing up in 42,000 decks, 3% of decks that are eligible to play it, which is a high inclusion rate, all things considered. And it's doing that Tesa Karlov effect, doubling your death triggers. This one has felt... Very odd to me, though, I've tried to play it in a lot of stuff. Like, I put this into my Conrad deck stat because I was like, oh, man, doubling Conrad's death triggers. That's going to be awesome. But it has not performed for me. It has a little bit of that feeling of, like, the the, the setup piece, the tempo is off. I have to take a turn off to get this one here. Um, Trying to make it indestructible feels cool, also feels hard. Exiling three creatures is actually kind of a sizable cost sometimes. Um, Not a good blocker until you give it the indestructible counter. And it just, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I've noticed that, like, you know, if I just had another Zulaport Cutthroat in play, I'd already be doubling stuff. And that one was cheaper and only cost me a quarter. So this is a card that I've gone back and forth on a lot. I don't know if you guys have any experience with it, but but Drivnod has not performed for me the way that I initially thought that it would. So I, I think this might be part of the same discussion as when we talked earlier about doubling and tripling 
um, tokens. Mm -hmm. But one thing we didn't mention then, and, and, and I think is kind of relevant there as well as here, your decks only have so many slots for this kind of effect. If you are playing a token deck, you can only really devote so many slots to doubling or tripling those tokens. If you're playing a deck that cares about death triggers, there's only so many slots you can devote to doubling up those triggers. Or you might find yourself in a position where you have trigger doublers and no nothing generating those actual death triggers. Mm -hmm. Or or ways to forcibly, because because you're also like probably running sack outlets and like there's a lot of moving pieces in those kind of decks, and you can very easily find yourself in a position where you have too many payoffs and nothing to actually pay off. Mm. Um, I think that's something we've seen with like the red damage doublers. We've gotten to the point where there's so many of them. You know, once upon a time, you could jam the fire emancipation and gratuitous violence and the insult and injury or or whatever you wanted in, in a single deck. Right. There's probably too many today to do that without finding yourself in a position where you have nothing to generate damage in the first place to, to double or triple it. Yeah. So I wonder if we aren't getting a little bit of that here where like you run the risk if you've put too many of these things in your deck, you can find yourself in a position where you don't have any triggers to cause in the first place. Yeah, and also too, like to me at least, spending five mana on a creature that only has three toughness, the, Drivenaut's kind of a terrible blocker until you pay the the man on the ability to put the indestructible counter on there too, which mm -hmm. that you don't want to be half you don't want to have to do that to make your blockers relevant. And so, to me, that I see why people would want to play this, but also the Tesa Karlov direct comparison there. Uh, there's a lot that's going on there. You see why you would want to play it, but also there's a lot that you're, it's just taking away from its ability to be played in as much as you want to put it in there. Yeah, yeah. Tesa being at the helm of her own deck and giving you access to white as the commander, I think is very, very relevant here. And this as a backup in a Tesa deck also totally makes a whole ton of sense to me. Having a backup is cool. Mm -hmm. But it, it is actually the kind of thing that requires a lot more attention than at first I thought it was. I thought that I could kind of just like put this into a deck and it would just be like by nature of what the deck is doing. It's just going to amplify everything the deck is doing. And that isn't necessarily actually the case. You do have to get other setup pieces in play that this will then amplify and that's a smaller percentage of the deck than at first it seems and i guess ultimately this kind of feels like it has the classic is this good in aristocrats problem where it's just like yeah everything's good in aristocrats though <laughs> like aristocrats is a really crowded field it's kind of like that is this good in a moldrotha deck yeah it's hard to find cards that are bad in a moldrotha deck but you do have to make some cuts because of how good everything is and this one i, I don't know if you're playing like a linda as well like where it's your commander has multiple death triggers that could also be the kind of thing that i think this really amplifies those are cool moments but I, I tried putting this into a whole lot of decks because i play aristocrat style necromancy style strategies a lot and I kept on cutting Drivnod, and I was really sad. I'm still trying to make this one work. I do not think it's a bad card. And the price is not nearly as egregious as some of the other ones that I've picked uh, in this episode. Yeah. Um, so I don't regret having this one. And if you out there are, are also trying this one, power to you. But I have found this one to occupy a much more awkward spot in my mana curve and in my decks than I expected it to when I first saw it. And that's just a, a thing that I wanted to put out there is like, hmm, I think I overrated this card. Yeah, well, and it's in over 42,000 decks too. So there's there's a lot of people that are trying to put this in there and make it work. And I don't know, to me, I, I also agree with your arguments against it, Joey. So I, I, I'm with you on this. And, and one final thing against it too, the indestructible counter that you can put on it requires you to do something that oftentimes actively hurts your strategy, which is a limb, which is exile three creatures from your graveyard. So like to, to actually make it a really good blocker, like you said, Matt, that is kind of fighting against what the deck is oftentimes trying to do as well. And that's, I mean, not a reason not to run it, but it's also a, one more thing that makes it less attractive than I think people realize. That, that is a bigger cost than a lot of the other Dominus kind of stuff, like Mondrak, which can just like, oh, sacrifice stuff. I probably already wanted to do that. Like, that'll give me benefits. Right. Exiling stuff from my graveyard is a much steeper cost. You're absolutely right. Okay, that was mine. But now let's move on to one of y'all's, Dana. Uh, my last one here is a Transcendent Message. Um, four blue and X. It has Convoke and Draw X cards. So generally speaking, I don't like X draw spells. Um it, it, their their utility is almost entirely predicated on you having a ton of mana free and nothing else to use it on. Um, and I don't think that's a good position to hope to find yourself in in a game. Um, now, what makes Transcendent Message a little bit better is that it has Convoke. So if like you are playing in a particular deck where you have a bunch of bodies out, um, being able to tap it to reduce that cost and still draw cards is uh, offsets that and makes it look like it's going to be much better. Um, but I've tried this card in a deck 
that's mono blue, so the, the the four pips isn't a problem, that makes a bunch of creatures, my Tauren Sky Summoner deck, that's that's very dedicated to just making drakes as a win condition. And even there, it's really, really clunky. Hmm. I, I find I want to be attacking with those drakes, and even in situations where I was making multiples in a turn that I then couldn't attack with, so they were available to to draw cards off transcend, Transcendent Message, I still found like very rarely did I have enough to offset the cost enough to make this better than just drawing two cards off Winged Words or just drawing two cards off Chart of Course. Mm. Like I, the, the, the investment of resources to make this not feel bad, even in kind of a perfect deck, very rarely felt good. And if you're not playing a perfect deck, which I, I don't think the you know 26,000 people that are running this are doing, I think it's an overrated card. Matt, I think you'd had experience with this one in your, was it your Ovika deck? So I, I didn't put it in my Ovika deck. I remember a few episodes ago, I had mentioned the color balance of everything where you're trying to cast a lot of cheap red spells. Right. And then there's also right next to it, it's transcendent message, uh, especially because you're playing cards that like you can sacrifice goblins to add red mana, but that doesn't help you cast transcendent message. So it's a card I, I think people should be mindful of because triple blue is no, or excuse me, quadruple blue. That's even more harder to do than triple blue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, quadruple blue X is, it's it's a hard thing to pull off. And so I I get why, Dana, you're saying this is a card to, to if you're going to put in decks, be mindful of it because absolutely the, the mana cost is going to be very, very hard to pull off. But I actively do not want to put this into my Ovika deck because quadruple blue in a deck that very like very heavily skews into red spells and, and a little bit of blue i see this being kind of hard to pull off yeah even if you do have enough blue creatures to pay that convoke cost it, it still has the problem of like okay you have a big board and here's a card that's going to get you more value <laughs> yeah uh, and, and it is a lot if you can pull those moves off but it does make you wish that like man when i've got a big board you know what i want i want something like reverse the polarity that's going to make them unblockable and then i can just like just snag someone that, that way like right. those are the kinds of things like if you've got a winning position is this card helping you definitely win the game or is it amplifying extra value and i think that that's kind of a pitfall that this one happens to fall into if you are in a position to make this a good card you're also in a position to just win the game versus drawing a bunch more cards probably yeah yeah so cosign cosign with you on that one and i'm glad that we've moved away from talking about black cards yay uh <laughs> matt how about your last one well let, let's get away from dogging on black cards and let's go back to dogging on white cards instead so <laughs> elish norn the flip elish norn that has one side as a saga and then the front side is an actual creature this one i see in so many decks and i just I'm not terribly impressed with it. So Elish Norn, it's two white, white for a three, five vigilance, uh, Phyrexian Praetor. If a source an opponent controls deals damage to you or a permanent you control, that source's controller loses two life unless they pay one mana. They can pay two and a white to sacrifice three other creatures. Exile Elish Norn, return it to the battlefield uh, as a saga that has three separate chapters. Uh, it's kind of slow. But anyways, the front side just... To me, it's so preventable. Yeah. One mana is not that huge of a deal, but it's being played in over 19,000 decks. I understand the appeal of wanting to ping your opponents back and, and discourage them from dealing damage to you, but a lot of times in Commander, if people are dealing damage, they're dealing lethal damage, so this, this triggered <laughs> ability doesn't even come into play. So... Again, combine that with the did-you-pay-the-one type of argument, except people are going to be more willing to pay to stay alive than they are to give you a card versus like Ristic Study, the very obvious comparison there. But also the the backside, the saga, in addition to needing to sacrifice creatures, which sometimes can be a benefit or easy to pull off, but you have to downsize your board then in a couple turns to give them all double strike. And that, to me, it's working against itself. Mm. There's a lot of things that are either they're negligible, it's too slow, or it's fighting against itself when trying to be a more effective card. I don't see why people are so high on this. It, in my mind, and it hurts me to say this, but like it's probably the weakest of all the Praetor cards we've ever gotten. I, I don't think this specific version of Elishnorn Interesting. is great because the other the other versions of Elishnorn have been bonkers powerful. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> like the original Elishnorn Grand Cenobite or Elishnorn Mother of Machines, doubling your blink stuff, like... Those cards, this is not. And it's showing up in 2% of decks that are eligible to play it is actually a, a higher inclusion rate than I expected as well. Uh, th this is one that I, I'm like, huh, yeah. I, I don't know that I'd 
play this anywhere. I, I think that there's probably like, if there people are playing like a strong Phyrexian theme deck, then this one's got a home there. Um, but it doesn't strike me as a card that I'm like, oh, you know what? I can't wait to play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th that's my feeling the same way. Like I read this card and I'm like, oh, I know what deck wants to run this, but there's not 19,000 of those decks. I don't, <laughs> I don't think out there right. that, that, that have a home that makes sense for this. And I don't, it's one of those cards. I think this is true of all the cards that we're talking about here. And that's probably why they are still in decks. None of them are ever bad. Right. Um, yeah. Many times they're quite good. But are they are they better than something else you could be running in that slot? I, I I think very rarely is that is that answer yes. There's almost always something that's going to be doing the thing that you're doing better and more consistently in the deck where these want to run. Well, and and here's something interesting. I am actually surprised. Uh, like first of all, none of us named a green card in our uh, in our discussions here for overrated stuff. Um, and I'm actually surprised because I anticipated that maybe Matt would have talked about a card that uh, when when we did a year in review for 2023, he labeled the card delighted halfling the green <laughs> mana dork as an overrated card from the past year uh it's showing up in ninety-three thousand decks it's showing up in 11 percent of decks that are available to play it and it's cost it costs like 12 dollars for this mana dork that can give you a man of any color only for a legendary spell and that spell can't be countered or it can just tap for a colorless matt is there a specific reason that you didn't want to touch on this one or what where's your, your head at with delighted halfling nowadays i i probably still the same i i think all my arguments still hold up and i know a lot of listeners and and they the comments especially uh pushed back on my stance on delighted halfling mm. i think a lot of the arguments that apply to those are like to my concerns about delighted halfling they're towards the top end of the power spectrum if you're playing in that cedh circle then yeah, you absolutely want that uncounterable because so much of people's decks sometimes can depend on the commander being in play. And, and if that's the argument, then yeah, I get that. But my argument specifically were for the typical player in the, the casual side of the spectrum, that doesn't matter more often than not. And so it's not that mana dorks aren't powerful because they, they certainly are. I don't think that this one specifically is $12 powerful. I think the, the money... The hype around it, I just I don't think it lines up with how powerful and how how we should be valuing a a mana dork for our format. Yeah, that, that was the thing that I also kind of wanted to bring home here as well. Uh, a lot of the cards that I chose, to me, it felt like a discrepancy between what the card performs as and its current price point. Exactly. Feels to me, like a, a, a real situation of like where overrated actually is kind of useful because you don't need to go out and spend $12 for this thing. If you're playing an Absence Spellgram, if you're playing a Land of War Elves, like 25 cent mana dorks are going to do a, a pretty similar enough job that you don't need to spend this much money on a, a card like this. Um, you know, I don't feel compelled to go and, and drop 21 bucks on that O'Hare talk to double up or to, to triple up my, my tokens because um, I don't think that it would do $21 worth of power for my decks and have that much of an impact. Uh, and, and so like, yeah, that's kind of like a final lesson for me is like paying attention to the price and and really evaluating what is worth it to you because a lot of cards that are a quarter can accomplish a lot of the same effects that you're looking for that some of these card slots would you know presuppose and that's just just a final lesson that i thought would be important to take away i think delighted halfling is a good example of that yeah absolutely um, um you know to, to continue down that kind of road um cavern of souls sure yeah is a card i'm running in multiple decks um because i've had cavern of souls or i've gotten them you know in a, in a draft environment or something or or whatever the amount of times that's been relevant over just the land that makes mana. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I could count on one hand in a decade, and and that's probably exaggerating. I don't even know if it's been that many times where that's been relevant, where it's per it's it's saved me from doing a particular thing. Um, not saying it can't happen, but like, is it worth the amount of money you pay for those two games? Uh, you know, every five or six years, I I, I don't know if it is. Uh oh, Dana, you've opened the door to beyond just cards from this past year. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, all right. Yeah. Let's let's gear up. Whole new episode. All most, right. Brainstorm. Most overrated, overrated. cards from Innistrad. Go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Watch out. Farewell. Overrated. Uh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can name so many if we open that door. Um, and maybe we will for a few future episodes. But this was an interesting way to look at the past year. Um, generally speaking, we loved a whole lot of cards from last year. So mm. these were just some standouts that were like, hmm, were they as effective for us as we thought? I'm sure, very sure, that plenty of listeners have had very opposite experiences than we have yeah. with a whole lot of these cards. We would love to hear your perspectives on these and which cards you think are overrated. Um, this really becomes one of those 
one person's trash is another person's treasure kind of discussions, sure. I think. Uh, so yeah, tell us your opinions. We'd really, uh, you know, we'd love to hear them. Uh, but if you're going to do that, you might as well like and subscribe while you're there. Uh, but with that, I think <laughs> we're uh, we're going to call this episode to a close. So fellas, if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where can they find you online? Uh, Matt? So you can find me on pretty much any social media platform out there. That's uh, always the same handle, though, at uh, Mathemus55. And don't forget, we are proud members of Team Ultimate Guard. So if you want some of the best accessories for your magic cards, your deck boxes, your sleeves, any of that, head to Ultimate Guard for all of your deck building accessory needs. And Dana? You can find me on the interwebs at Dana Roach. I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at MagicCon Chicago as well as <laughs> at patreon.com slash idiotrackcast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz online. Most likely I'm being a fool on Instagram. And you can find the cast at idiotrackcast everywhere online. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at idiotrackcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for their fantastic work in the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Wreck your deck.